Hey podcast audience, this is the first episode of At the Beach with Brad. Now, when I say the first episode, it's just, you know, one of many episodes in the main podcast right? However, this is the first of a projected seven episodes that are recorded while I am at the beach. These episodes are being recorded because I'm not going to be able to talk to Maddie for a lot of the trip. And so I figured I might as well record the episodes and include some re- nightly reading to aid in the following evening that I am apart from said woman. Now, if somebody stumbles upon these and they happen not to be Maddie, well, hi, welcome along if you want to stay. Great. If you don't want to stay, that's probably a much more normal reaction, but you're stuck with me. But due to the fact that I'm sharing a room with my little brother, Andrew, say hi, Andrew. He can't hear me, so let's just say hi. Hi. So, since I'm that, you might hear him in the background every now and then, but just to let you know, everything's okay. It's just my little brother. So, without further ado, the first episode of At the Beach with Brad. We are picking up tonight's reading on page 220 of The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. If you have no clue what's going on in the book, that's completely normal. I'm not going to try to explain it, and I haven't recorded any other episodes of it. So good luck trying to understand. It's going to jump around a lot just because I'm going to be reading this book on the beach. So you might have to get over it a little bit because you're going to be confused. So without further ado, I'm going to start reading. Thank you. So far in this book, I've painted a portrait of human nature that is somewhat cynical. I've argued that Glaucon was right, and that we care more about looking good than about truly being good. Intuitions come first, strategic reasoning second. We lie, cheat, and cut ethical corners quite often when we think we can get away with it, and then we use our moral thinking to manage our reputations and justify ourselves to others. We believe our own post hoc reasoning so thoroughly that we end up self-righteously convinced of our own virtue. I do believe that you can understand most of moral psychology by viewing it as a form of enlightened self-interest. And if it's self-interest, then it's easily explained by Darwinian's natural selection working at the level of the individual. Genes are selfish. Selfish genes create people with various mental modules and some of these mental modules make us strategically altruistic, not reliably or universally altruistic. Our righteous minds were shaped by kin selection plus reciprocal altruism augmented by gossip and reputation management. That's the message of nearly every book on the evolutionary origins of morality, and nothing I've said so far contradicts that message. But in part three of this book, I'm going to show why that portrait is incomplete. Yes, people are often selfish, and a great deal of our moral, political, and religious behavior can be understood as thinly veiled ways of pursuing self-interest. Just look at the awful hypocrisy of so many politicians and religious leaders. But it's also true that people are groupish. We love to join teams, clubs, leagues, and fraternities, such as Lambda Chi Alpha. We take on group identities and work shoulder to shoulder with strangers toward common goals so enthusiastically 
that it seems as if our minds were designed for teamwork. I don't think we can understand morality, politics, or religion until we have a good picture of human, human groupishness and its origins. We cannot understand conservative morality and the Durkheimian societies I described in the last chapter. Neither can we understand socialism, communism, and the communalism of the left. Let me be more precise. When I say that human nature is selfish, I mean that our minds contain a variety of mental mechanisms that make us adept at promoting our own interests in competition with our peers. When I say that human nature is also groupish, I mean that our minds contain a variety of mental mechanisms that make us adept at promoting our group's interest in competing with other groups. We are not saints, but some, we are sometimes good team players. Stated in this way, the origin of these groupish mechanisms becomes a puzzle. Do we have groupish minds today because groupish individuals long ago outcompeted less groupish individuals within the same group? If so, then this is just standard bread and butter natural selection operating at the level of the individual. And if that's the case, then this is Glauconian, Glauconian groupishness. We should expect to find that people care about the appearance of loyalty, not the reality. Or do we have groupish mechanisms? such as the rally around the flag reflex, because groups that succeeded in coalescing and cooperating outcompeted groups that couldn't get it together. If so, then I'm invoking a process known as group selection, and group selection was banished as a her heresy from the scientific circles in the 1970s. In this chapter, I'll argue that group selection was falsely convicted and unfairly banished. I'll present four pieces of new evidence that I believe exonerate group selection, in some, but not all, forms. This new evidence demonstrates the value of thinking about groups as real entities that compete with each other. This new evidence leads us directly to the third and final principle of moral psychology. Morality binds and blinds. I will suggest that human nature is mostly selfish, but with a groupish overlay that resulted from the fact that natural selection works at multiple levels simultaneously. Individuals compete with individuals, and that competition towards selfishness, re competition rewards selfishness, which includes some forms of strategic cooperation. Even criminals can work together to further their own interests. But at the same time, groups compete with groups, and that competition favors groups composed of true team players, those who are willing to cooperate and work for the good of the group, even when they can do better by slacking, cheating, or leaving the group. These two processes pushed human nature in different directions and gave us the strange mix of selfishness and selflessness that we know today. Victorious tribes? Question mark? Here's an example of one kind of group selection. In a few remarkable pages of The Descent of Man, Darwin made the case for group selection, raised the principal objection to it, and then proposed a way around the objection. Quote, when two tribes of primeval man living in the same country come, came into competition, if, in other circumstances being equal, the one, in, the one tribe included a great number of courageous, sympathetic, and faithful members who were always ready to warn each other of danger, to aid and defend each other, this tribe would succeed better and conquer the other. The advantage which disciplined soldiers have over undisciplined hordes 
follows chiefly from the confidence which each man feels in his comrades. Selfish and contentious people will not cohere, and without coherence nothing can be effected. A tribe rich in the above qualities would spread and be victorious over other tribes. End quote. Cohesive tribes began to function like individual organisms competing with other organisms. The tribes that were more cohesive generally won. Natural selection, therefore, worked on tribes the same way it works on every other organism. But in the very next paragraph, Darwin raised the free rider problem, which is still the main objection raised against group selection. Quote, but it may be asked, how within the limits of the same tribe did a large number of members first become endowed with these social and moral qualities, and how was the standard of excellence raised? It is extremely doubtful whether the offspring of the more sympathetic and benevolent parents, or of those who were the most faithful to their comrades, would be reared in greater numbers than the children of selfish and treacherous parents belonging to the same tribe. He who is ready to sacrifice his life, as many a savage has been, rather than betray his comrades, would often leave no offspring to inherit his noble nature. End quote. Darwin grasped the basic logic of what is now known as multi-level selection. Life is a hierarchy of nested levels, like Russian dolls. Genes within chromosomes, within cells, within individual organisms, within hives, societies, and other groups. There can be competition at any level of the hierarchy, but for our purposes, studying morality, the only two levels that matter are those of the individual organism and the group. When groups compete, the cohesive cooperative group usually wins, but within each group, selfish individuals, free riders, come out ahead. They share in the group's gains. While contributing little to its efforts. The bravest army wins, but within the bravest army, the few cowards who hang back are the most likely of all to survive the fight, go home alive, and become fathers. Multi-level selection refers to a way of quantifying how strong the selection process is at each level, which means how strongly the competition of life favors genes for particular traits. A gene for suicidal self-sacrifice would be favored by group-level selection, if it would help the team win. But it would be so strongly opposed by selection at the individual level that such a trait could evolve only in species such as bees, where competition within the hive has been nearly eliminated and almost all selection is group selection. Bees and ants and termites are the ultimate team players, one for all, all for one all the time, even if that means dying to protect the hive from invaders. Humans can be turned into suicide bombers, but it takes a great deal of treasure, training, pressure, and psychological manipulation. It doesn't come easy to us. Once human groups had some minimal ability to band together and compete with other groups, then group-level selection came into play, and the most groupish groups had an advantage over groups of selfish individualists. But how did early humans get these groupish abilities in the first place? Darwin proposed a series of probable steps by which humans evolved to the point where there could be groups of team players in the first place. The first step was the social instincts. In ancient times, losers were more likely to get picked off by predators than were their more gregarious siblings, 
who felt a strong need to stay close to the group. The second step was reciprocity. People who helped others were more likely to get help when they needed it most. But the most important, quote, stimulus to the development of the social virtues, end quote, was the fact that people are passionately concerned with, quote, the praise and blame of our fellow men, end quote. Darwin, writing in Victorian England, shared Glaucon's view from aristocratic Athens that people are obsessed with their reputations. Darwin believed that the emotions that drive this, this obsession were acquired by natural selection, acting at the individual level. Those who lacked a sense of shame or a love of glory were less likely to attract friends and mates. Darwin also added a final step, the capacity to treat duties and principles as sacred, which he saw as part of our religious nature. When you put these steps together, they take you along an evolutionary path from earlier primates to humans, among whom free riding is no longer so attractive, and a real army which sacralizes sacralizes honor, loyalty, and country, the coward is not the most likely to make it home and father children. He's the most likely to get beaten up, left behind, or shot in the back for committing sacrilege. And if he does make it home alive, his reputation will repel women and potential employers. Real armies, like most effective groups, have many ways of suppressing selfishness. And any time a group finds a way to suppress selfishness, it changes the balance of forces in a multi-level analysis. Individual level selection becomes less important, and group level selection becomes more powerful. For example, if there is a genetic basis for feelings of loyalty and sanctity, i.e. the loyalty and sanctity foundation, then intense intergroup competition will make these genes become more common in the next generation. The reason is that groups in which these traits are common will replace groups in which they are rare, even if these genes impose a small cost on their bearers, relative to those that lack them within each group. And what might be the pithiest and most prescient statement in the history of moral psychology, Darwin summarized the evolutionary origins of morality in this way, quote, Ultimately, our moral sense or conscience becomes a highly complex sentiment, originating in the social instincts, largely guided by the approbation of our fellow men, ruled by reason, self-interest, and in later times by deep religious feelings, and confirmed by instruction and habit. Quote. Darwin's response to the free rider problem satisfied readers for nearly a hundred years, and group selection became the standard part of evolutionary thinking. Unfortunately, most writers did not bother to work out exactly how each problem, each particular species solved the free rider problem, as Darwin had done for human beings. Claims about animals behaving for the good of the group proliferated. For example, the claim that individual animals restrain their grazing or their breeding so as not to put the group at risk of over-exploiting its food supply. Even more lofty claims were made about animals acting for the good of the species or even of the ecosystem. These claims were naive because individuals that followed the selfless strategy would have literally fewer surviving offspring and would soon be replaced in the population by the descendants of free riders. In 1966, this loose thinking was brought to a halt, along with, with almost all thinking about group selection.